0: Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons." So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Father, we humbly pause and do ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit to just have a heart that's receptive and an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church who's assembled this morning as we go through this particular portion of the word of God in Mark's gospel. So Lord, give us the grace. You know what we need and what we're each asking. We pray that you would now speak by your spirit through what you have already spoken in the word of God to us. We ask you to bless your word now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, part of life generally, I find, involves periodic misunderstandings. And I want to add to that, especially all the more when we are living out a Christian life, Seeking to honor the Lord and to walk in the ways of God, which is often opposed to human logic and just natural reasoning, as well as, of course, it runs contrary to worldly patterns, all the more such will include, from time to time, the experience of being misunderstood and even falsely and wrongly accused. Think about it. Jesus lived out as a man a perfect sinless life and how he operated. In the way that our Lord functioned, he never did anything wrong, thought anything wrong, said anything wrong, and yet nonetheless we find that Jesus at times was not only misunderstood but even harshly and wrongly accused with false accusations. When people who did not know God's will and did not understand why our Lord would operate the way he would or do the things he did to please the Father, in those situations, Jesus was misunderstood, he was even falsely accused. Yet in those times, Jesus sought to address those misunderstandings as well, even in some way use them as teachable moments, using those occasions to enlighten people For their own spiritual welfare. And such is really what we now see happening here in our text this morning, teaching us, I believe, lessons for our own experiences as well. Now, as a brief backdrop, you remember from our last study in Mark's Gospel together, we've been seeing during this time period, the ministry of Jesus is greatly expanding. Multitudes are now coming, the ministry is now flourishing. And it's in connection to that, which is why we read, if you glance back with me, verse 20 as our text begins this morning, that it tells us here, then the multitude, large crowds again, came together, verse 20, once again, so that they, that's Jesus and his disciples, his ministry team, they could not so much as even eat bread. So, so many people are now assembling to our Lord, they want to hear his teaching, they're seeking his help, they want to experience his power, that at this point in time, such a heavy workload of ministry is upon our Lord and upon his ministry team, that they have such a busy schedule, the Bible says here, that they barely even had time to pause to eat meals. The workload is intense. There's a lot of ministry going on. This is a good problem, but it's a problem nonetheless. And we now find Jesus and his team, if you would here, enduring this struggle, which required a degree of personal sacrifice to keep up with the ministry demands and serving the Lord's people. And from time to time, that could be an experience that we go through. Now, as word travels back to Jesus's hometown, to his family, to his friends back there in Nazareth. Look with me, verse 21, what happens? It says, when his own people, that's relatives, friends from the community, where he, when they heard, verse 21, about this, they went out to lay hold of him, the language literally means to seize him, to take control of him, for they said, He is out of his cotton-picking mind. Now, I mean, look how normal human beings are. Nothing's changed in the sun. They hear how inundated Jesus is, how he is maintaining now this schedule with his ministry team and the workload, and how they are, if you would, running themselves ragged that there is such a busy schedule. They're not even pausing to eat meals. They're probably losing sleep, whatever. And they see all this great sacrifice and the personal cost they're enduring and the wear and tear. And they hear how busy Jesus is. Word gets back to his hometown that at this point in time now, they become greatly concerned, even worried for his welfare and his personal health to the point where, look at it right there in the text, the Bible tells us, verse 21, that their perception and observation was, he's literally gone out of his mind with this whole thing. And all of a sudden now, they think Jesus being overwhelmed, but more than that, they're looking at it as he is so zealous for the things of God, he has become so, not just committed, but overcommitted, with his spiritual zeal and this ministry work and his passion for doing things for the kingdom of God, in their mind, they're thinking he's got a little bit fanatical. I mean, he's potentially maybe having a a, a mental breakdown at this point. They literally say, I mean, this has kind of gone off the rails, a bit overboard in commitment. They're thinking to themselves, he's not making sound judgments anymore. He's not thinking clearly. In fact, So much so that it tells us that they thought he needed someone to rescue him, and it actually says they went out to take him. The language, again, as I said, is to seize him. The idea is we've got to go grab hold of him, rescue him, bring him back to his hometown and to his family. He's gotten a little too extreme in this, and he needs to be brought back to reality. We've got to restrain him for his own welfare. And can I just say, what a tremendous misunderstanding. Would you agree? Coming from his own family and his friends. They are worried about him due to his what? His spiritual fervor and his seemingly great devotion to God, which they see as a commitment level that is overcommitted, fanatical, and just getting a little bit too radical. And look, at times... This may happen as the spirit of our Lord Jesus, who now dwells inside of us as believers, and he's working in our lives as Christians, as he works in our lives, sometimes, hopefully by the grace of God, we become more and more devoted. And as the spirit of the Lord works in our life, we may become very devoted to the things of the Lord and consumed with the things of God. And maybe there's a great change from how not only we once were prior to being a Christian, but people now see us like really zealous for the Lord. And they start watching and thinking, well, I mean, I mean, it was one thing when you were going to church every Sunday, but now you like, you go do the midweek thing. I mean, what, what is up with you? And you're, I mean, you're reading your Bible every single day now. And every time you're talking, it's like you can't get through five or ten minutes of conversation. You always got to talk about something that the Lord's doing in your life or you're referencing a Bible verse or you're, you're, you're doing all these volunteer ministry things your church does now. And, and sometimes people look at the level of commitment in our lives as believers and they begin to see it, and to them it appears, maybe to our family or friends, that we've become overly radical, maybe even somewhat fanatical, as if you're taking this thing a little bit too far, and that we're not thinking correctly, and they actually might even start to worry about us. Are you just getting a little fanatical with this whole Christianity thing and this walking with Jesus thing and how excited you are about the Bible to the point where they might caution and even maybe try and rescue or stop us to some degree? And look, let me say, isn't it amazing how people can be radically committed and make great sacrifices to all types of other things? And that's perceived as admirable and even applauded. Maybe it's a career and somebody is radically committed to their career and they're climbing the corporate ladder or, you know, they're just, their job is inundating with a schedule and, and people will look that, man, he is a hustler and man, he works hard and boy, he just, you know, he's pumping, you know, 60 hours a week and man was really providing well for his family. And Man, he is a hard, and, and that's admired and applauded. Nobody says, man, you're fanatical. Why, why are you working so hard? And it's not seemed as quite as out of the mind, or maybe it's whatever, you know, some hobby or pursuit, or the newest, you know, diet idea, or the newest exercise plan. And it's amazing how we can get radically committed as people to all types of other things, be really devoted, dump tons of time and energy, and there's a whole different standard for that. Have you ever noticed That's like, man, wow! They are just—they're really committed to that thing. And good for you. And I can tell you've lost fifteen pounds. And wow, right right on! You're finally thinking straight. You're caring about your health. But, but amazing, when it comes to spiritual things, well, that's a little bit weird. That's and 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 there's a complete different concept as far as the way people think about that. But why? Because it's a worldly mindset. Let me just say this morning, if you have been misunderstood because of your zeal for the Lord or your dedication to the things of the Lord and your family has said things or friends have said things or people have kind of tried to, you know, calm down what seems to be like a, a strong commitment to the things of the Lord, let me encourage you to say, know that you're in good company. They thought that about Jesus, they thought that about Paul the Apostle on one occasion. You know, I believe it was Agrippa or Festus, forgive me if I'm wrong, you can check. You know, he said, Paul, much learning is driving you mad. You're studying your Bible too much. You're literally becoming a madman now. David himself, they thought he was insane in the Old Testament and others in church history as well. So again, this misunderstanding is, in a sense, brought towards Jesus, the accusation, he's, guy, he's losing his mind, we have to go help him. Look as our text goes on, verse 22, and then it says, and then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, you always descend from Jerusalem, it was seen as the high place, though it always wasn't uh, geographically, but they come now from where the temple is, the, the capital city, and they come down and they say, look at verse 22, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, that's how he's casting out demons. So once again, another group from among the Jewish religious leaders, we've seen them, the Pharisees, the, the uh, Sadducees. Now we have, again, another reference here, the scribes. We've seen that earlier. They who strongly opposed our Lord's ministry, they arrived to f- confront him. Now the scribes particularly understand, it says are the scribes, the scribes were men who were skilled in Mosaic law, as well as in all the customs of Judaism. They were known historically as the experts in Jewish law, tradition, and custom. They actually hand-copied the Scriptures. You want to talk about meticulous and knowing well the Word of God, they knew the facts of Old Testament Scripture very well mentally. They were also the appointed interpreters and the teachers of the Word of God in that time period among Israel, So they had that sacred duty of instructing the people what God's law meant, and these rabbis and scribes, they were revered in Jewish culture for their views on scripture, their thoughts about spiritual matters, social and legal as well. However, though these men knew scripture information in their heads very well, you can clearly see in the text and in the gospel accounts, their hearts were not right with the Lord. Or did they know facts of the Word of God? Most certainly. They could probably quote verses backwards and forwards and make you and I look like completely naive, inexperienced believers. They knew facts of Scripture, but their hearts were not right spiritually. It was mainly dead ritualism, and they become a good reminder, let me say this by way of application, it is possible to know truths mentally, but not live them out practically. And to me, I have to say, this is probably one of the greatest deceptions spiritually thinking that because you know the Bible, that you're actually living it out too. And for some weird reason, this bizarre misunderstanding can creep in from time to time where a person thinks just because they know the Bible well, that it means they're actually living out the Bible and obeying the Bible. And that's not always the case. I've seen people, you've witnessed people, maybe we failed in the area where we know the Bible well, but in self-will we're living completely in contradiction to the very Bible that we know well. Because in self-will we're living, in a sense, in a wrong way. And that is a horrible misunderstanding. Can I remind all of us this morning? Think of Jesus' temptation. Satan himself knows the truths of the word of God, but he's not living in submission to them, He doesn't honor the Word of God, but he knows it. He can even quote it. He can even quote it in a way that he sounded really spiritual, where he was trying to deceive Jesus himself. And these religious leaders, these scribes, they knew Bible facts, but they were in a very unhealthy inward spiritual condition. Remember, back in chapter 2, we saw that it was the scribes who've already accused Jesus of blasphemy because he was indicating that he could forgive the sins of people. And they saw that as a blasphemous thing. So these men are not in a good spiritual condition. They now travel from Jerusalem and they again start to attack our innocent Lord in their accusations. And look at their first accusation. They say to him, verse 22, they say of him, he has Beelzebub and it's by the ruler of demons that he's actually casting out demons. Now, Beelzebub was a title that meant Lord of the Flies. And of course, we all know flies are gross creatures. It also was a term, Beelzebub, that was also translated God of the Dunghill. So, the idea of this is a very unclean demonic spirit. In time, the phrase Beelzebub, that title, started to get used interchangeably, and you can see that as the language goes on, It started to get used interchangeably, that title Beelzebub, for Satan himself. And the first accusation that these scribes make about our Lord Jesus, God's perfect eternal son, is they say, he's possessed with a demonic spirit. That's what's wrong with this guy. There is a demonic spirit controlling him from within. And can I just say, that's a pretty harsh accusation to make about Jesus himself of all people, to say that he's being ruled inwardly by a demon. Just consider all the good and helpful and loving things we've already seen Jesus doing in the first few chapters of Mark's gospel. And given that fruit of his life and the character and what he's displayed for them to now accuse him and claim, yeah, that guy's demon-possessed. That guy that's going around loving people, sacrificing, serving, teaching, loving, healing, delivering people, he's got a demon in his life. You want to talk about not only a misunderstanding, but a very cruel comment to make, but what does this show you? That does not even make sense logically. It's a completely absurd claim. Demons work to ruin lives. Jesus was always helping people's lives. How could he possibly be controlled by a demon? And not only that, they say in verse 22 that the very source of his power was not from God, but they said the way he would cast out demons and unclean spirits, as we've seen our Lord do in the text, they said, he's not doing that by God's power. He's actually doing that by the power of Satan himself, accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan rather than the work of God. Again, talk about being horribly misunderstood. But I tell you, I look at this, and it is a good reminder to me, it is amazing how when people's hearts are not right spiritually, how absolutely absurd their reasoning becomes mentally. As well as how absolutely, utterly cruel and evil their mouths can become in things that they would say. To accuse our Lord of those kind of things. Well, as they make this accusation with insulting reasoning here that's absurd, Jesus now wisely starts to address their error to try and clear up misunderstanding and speak truth in a teachable way to them, even out of love for them still, as well as others who are listening. Verse 23, Jesus responding says, "'He called them to himself, and he said to them, "'How can Satan cast out Satan?'' Now notice, it says, Jesus now begins to speak in parables. The word parable is actually a compound word, para, which means next to. And bellow, which is the other part of it, means to cast or throw something down. So parable literally means to cast or lay something down alongside of or next to something else. So when the Bible tells us that Jesus taught in parables... The idea of a parable in teaching is to lay down an earthly picture or an earthly story next to a spiritual or an eternal truth to be able to help connect and have better understanding. And so Jesus now starts to speak in language and in pictures to illustrate really the, the you know, if I could use the term, the lunacy of the claims that they were making here towards him. Jesus says, first of all, to them, wait a minute, How can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, how and why would Satan cast himself out? He says, that really doesn't make any sense. Why would he do such a thing? Why would Satan work in opposition to himself if he's an enemy of God and if he's a king of the darkest kingdom that exists in the demonic realm? Why would he hinder his own agenda? I mean, this would be like, if I could illustrate, like a general in battle, going out and disarming all his soldiers or killing everyone in his ranks and then trying to win the battle. And Jesus says, this doesn't even make sense. That would not be a good tactic of warfare. But again, when people are troublemakers, they often make very absurd claims and they say things that are very unreasonable. And why? Because they're just saying things to get their own agenda accomplished. And so Jesus kind of addresses how erroneous this is, and he goes on with logical reasoning. Look what he goes on to say, verse 24. He says, look, if a kingdom, now he starts using pictures, is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So everyone knows that if a kingdom has citizens that are divided and they're not unified in their efforts, and they're opposed to one another, people aren't agreed, but they're resisting each other and fighting against one another, then anyone knows the citizens of that kingdom are going to experience destabilization amongst themselves as a group of people, because they're working in opposition to one another, and ultimately it will bring about the inward collapse of that kingdom. He says, not only will it destabilize the kingdom, but he says, ultimately, they'll collapse from within. You can't stand if you operate in that way. And so the point he is making is that if the kingdom of darkness was divided, it would never last or remain effective. Satan would destabilize his own kingdom and it would quickly collapse from within and would not be having any further impact opposing the kingdom of God. He then goes on verse 25 to say, and if a house where a household or family, the ideas is, is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So if a household, a family, is not unified, if there's opposing ideas and opinions in heart and mind and purpose, and they're not living in agreement, but there's ongoing domestic civil war, if you would where two different sides stubbornly want their own idea or their own preference and so they're opposing one another and constantly fighting and resisting one another he says that selfish disunity again will bring destabilization in the family life and it ultimately will unfortunately bring deterioration in relationship and bring about internal collapse in a marriage or internal collapse in a family or a household. Again, if Satan's spiritual household is not operating under the devil as their father, remember in John 8, Jesus called the devil their spiritual father. And so, if Satan's spiritual household isn't following their spiritual father, and they're not able to continue in their efforts to work together as a family, he says, the household of Satan is going to fall apart. It's not going to work. Now, In this, please don't miss, I think Jesus states a very clear spiritual truth that's important, and that is this, is that divided houses will not be stable, but they will fall apart. A divided household will not be stable. It is doomed to fall apart. You notice in both verse 24 and in verse 25 that Jesus does not say, When there's division, things probably won't stand. Do you see what he says? Look at it in the text there. He says both times they cannot stand. He doesn't say they won't or they might not. He says it's not possible. It's not they may internally fall apart. He's saying they cannot stand. It just won't work. The inward division not being resolved will bring destabilization and ultimately it will collapse from within. It cannot work, Jesus says. It will be like an incurable cancer. The division will gradually bring about the destruction of that household. And look, this spiritual principle is something I think we need to remember as well in the spiritual household and family of God as well, to realize how important this is in God's household, that a spiritual house of God's people, a church that's divided cannot stand. It's not going to work long term. It's ultimately going to become destabilized and unhealthy and that disunity and division will bring an instability and eventually things will fall apart. That will ultimately be the outcome. That is why it's so important, folks, for all of us to obey God's word and how we relate to one another as God's family, honoring our father and as good stewards of the household of faith and as the family of God. And God's word is filled with scriptures all throughout regarding the importance of harmony and unity and healthy fellowship in the family of God, that we can't seek our own will and be self-willed and strive to have our way in the flesh, but we have to address and work through misunderstandings and offenses and unhealthy things that happen and do our best to pursue unity and restore relationship. Philippians 2 says it this way. It speaks of being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And then he adds this. Here's how that happens. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is when you think that you are the most important, and that's why you selfishly ambition strive for what you want, Don't let that happen, but he says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What's a key to unity? Not thinking that you're most important and your way is most important, but saying, I'm gonna consider you're more important than me, and I'm more concerned about your welfare, and I'm looking out in consideration for what's in the best interest of others, and so therefore, at times, I will just say no to myself. And I will deny myself and have the mind of Christ and say, what's best for others? And that keeps unity in relationships. Philippians 4, Paul then went on to say to two ladies in the church who were having a dispute, I implore Eodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Ephesians 4, Paul writing there, tells us to walk worthy of our calling. And then he says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. We're already unified in Christ. We all share the same Spirit, but things happen that disrupt that unity from time to time because guess what? We're still at times fleshly, and we're sinful, and we get selfish, and we we behave wrong, but he says what our calling is as Christians is not to say that's it, but we're to endeavor to do our part to keep unity to try and work towards that. Romans 12 says it, that as much as it's possible with you, live peaceably with all men. But please notice the caveat, as much as it's possible with you. In other words, you do your part. It takes two people, it takes two parties to reconcile, to resolve, and both submit to the will of the Lord for true unity and harmony to come to pass. If one person wants to keep acting in the flesh, You can make all the efforts in the world you want to some degree, and you can tell your enemy, look, can we have a ceasefire? And they can say, no, I still want to kill you. No, I still want my land. But the Bible says you lay your head down on your pillow at night in good conscience knowing that as much as it depended upon you, you sought to live peaceably. You tried to be reasonable and loving and honor the word of God and that you know before God, hey, Lord, in honoring you, I tried to do my part, but I can't control what the other party's doing. And look, that's so important because one final scripture before we move on, listen to Romans 16, Paul addresses when someone is unhealthy saying this, Romans 16, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, note, pay attention to those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you've learned and avoid them. For those who do such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, their own appetites. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple, the naive, the gullible. Do you hear what the Word of God says? When you note and you see someone in the body of Christ who is causing divisions contrary to what the Word of God says and how we're to behave as Christians, and you take that and you recognize that he says, when you see that kind of thing, he says, avoid people like that. They are unhealthy individuals, do not embrace them, disconnect from them, avoid them, the Bible instructs, because they don't serve the Lord, they're serving their own desires, their own appetites, and he says the issue is they will do it in a way where with, interesting, God's word says smooth words and flattering speech. It's almost as if God knows us, isn't it? And so he cautions us. Listen, don't be deceived. Don't let misunderstanding happen. When someone is being self-seeking and divisive, the Bible tells us God hates those who cause division. And so we as well should stand against such because we know it has a destructive impact. And so here, Jesus says, take note, a divided household, it won't stand. It will be self-sabotaging ultimately. He then goes on to say, becoming a direct now to the foolish accusations, verse 26, and if Satan himself is risen up against himself, battling him himself, the ideas, and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. So Jesus comes direct now back to Satan himself, and he says, look, if Satan himself first possesses people with an evil spirit, And then he turns right back around and changes his mind. And then he uses Jesus by his power to then deliver that person from an evil spirit. Jesus saying, don't you think that seems a little counterproductive? Let me possess him with an evil spirit. Ah, I changed my mind. I think I want to do something different now. Let me now use Jesus, this spiritual man and now i'm going to use him by my power to deliver people from that same evil spirit he's saying wouldn't that be a little foolish and counterproductive and their claim that jesus was doing this in the power of satan when he would deliver people was completely ridiculous because jesus kept opposing the work of satan in people's lives clearly showing that he was opposed to Satan's power, not working in cooperation. And again, Jesus, to me, identifies in the midst of kind of reasoning this out with them, he identifies another very clear spiritual lesson to remove misunderstanding, and that's this, as he talks about Satan being kind of divided within himself as a a being or a person, and that is this, is that people who live double-minded and are constantly contradicting themselves, which is what they were saying Satan was doing, People who live divided as well will not be stable individuals. They will not be healthy individuals. That divided person will become a person living in rebellion to what's right, pursuing self-sabotage and ruin. And, and, And as he describes Satan in this way, I think it's a good lesson for all of us to take caution, to beware. Listen, beware of living a divided life Spiritually, beware of that. Beware of the danger of living a divided spiritual life where you're committed to God and you're committed to obeying God's word, and then you turn around, and then all of a sudden now you're not committed to God, and now you're not committed to obeying God's word. And you're going to live in submission to the scripture and say, Nevertheless, what does scripture say? And that's the final authority in my life, and no matter how I feel, or what I think, or what I desire this is the Word of God, it's Spirit-inspired, and so the same Spirit that inspired this who dwells within me is telling me, submit myself to the authority of this, and we do that, and then we turn right back around because of a desire or a preference or a thought or a feeling, and then we, we contradict the Word of God. And we justify that we can behave in a way that doesn't align the word of God and we start to live a divided life spiritually that is a very dangerous thing a divided spiritual life will not be a stable life again jesus says of the division of satan they were describing look what he says verse 26 if he lived like that he could not stand but would have an end and the same is true of a spiritual life of any one of us if we live a divided spiritual life It will bring, folks, self-sabotage. We will bring our own downfall. This vacillating and back and forth is a very dangerous thing. Again, what does James warn us of in chapter 1? He says the double-minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. Unstable spiritually, unstable mentally, unstable emotionally, unstable relationally. Dangerous. The Word of God cautions this, and Jesus, having proved he's not aligned with Satan, that that's absurd and illogical, but opposed to the house of Satan, he now reveals, verse 37, or verse 27, what he really was doing. He says, let me me clarify what was going on. Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Take what belongs to him, unless he first binds the strong man, ties him up, and then he will plunder his house. So Jesus is illustrating here how he was actually working in a powerful way to rescue captives from Satan, not helping Satan, but to take people under Satan's control and liberate them. He pictures here in our verse, verse 27, how if a person is strong, Jesus says it requires then someone stronger than that person to enter into their house to use their strength to overcome, to tie them up, and then you can rob from them the things that are their property. Now, when we think of that in light of the terms Jesus is using here, verse 27, the strong man he's referring to in that picture is a reference to Satan. And the supernatural power that Satan has is a fallen angel as the ruler of this world. The goods in Satan's spiritual house, the goods, the property that he has, in a sense, under his control are the many souls of people living in darkness and deception that are under Satan's control by his strength. Supernaturally, they are prisoners and captives, even at times possessed by an unclean spirit. Second Timothy chapter two speaks of how the devil takes people captive to do his will. To me, that's always stood out to me. As Christians, we always, I want to do God's will. I want to do God's will. We understand that. Jesus even talks about that at the end of our chapter. But notice the Bible says that Satan also has a will for people too. He says Satan has taken certain people captive to do his will instead of God's will. And so these would be the goods, the possessions of Satan. But Jesus, as the eternal son of God, is the stronger one in our analogy there in verse 27 who is stronger than Satan, and he can enter into Satan's spiritual household and bind, if you would, and overpower Satan in his own strength, because Jesus has much greater strength and authority, and in then binding Satan spiritually, he can liberate people from under Satan's control and possession. Jesus clarifies what was really happening as he says, I've been robbing Satan's house, and he and you are a little bit mad about that. And he says, that's what's really been going on. I, as the stronger one, have been setting free prisoners from, God's, you know, from from Satan's household and bringing them into God's family. And what an encouraging thing as we read verse 27, and Jesus uses that picture, to remember as the Lord's people that our Lord Jesus has the power to overrule Satan at any moment that he wants to, and that he is our mighty Lord is able to do such things, and therefore, as his servants, we should, in faith, believing that reality of our Lord's power and authority, we should pray in that manner, believing the Lord can bind the power of Satan and deliver people from Satan's control. That we should minister in ways, understanding our Lord has the power to set people free from the domain and the directives of Satan over their lives. And to know that our Lord is able to go in and do that, and we should partner with him in his work. Now, verse 28, Jesus goes on to say, "'Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whoever blaspheme, whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation.'" And Mark adds that he said that specifically, because they accused him of having an unclean spirit. So notice, because their hearts, the scribes, the religious leaders, had become so hard against our Lord at this time to the point that they actually would, as we've seen, accuse him of being possessed by Satan and doing the work of Satan, Jesus, because of the seeing the hardness of their heart, now issues a very strong warning, listen, of a dangerous pathway that he could see that they were on in their trajectory spiritually. And that dangerous pathway, Jesus says, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he says, which never has forgiveness and makes a person subject to eternal condemnation or being cast into hell. Now, let me begin by describing, as we often refer to this as an unpardonable sin, as Jesus describes this what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not. Let me begin there. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is clearly not committing any one particular sin, no matter how vile that sin may be. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin, as we often, it's not adultery, it's not murder, it's not divorce, It's not even any of the heinous or vile sins that we may think of that, man, that is such a vile, evil thing. Listen, do certain sins have more severe consequences in the harm they cause? Absolutely. No one would dispute that. But before a holy and a righteous God, sin is sin. And any sin makes us guilty before a holy and a righteous God. So it is not one practice of sin or a particular sin or any amount of sin That's the unpardonable sin. Listen, the Bible teaches, as you study it as a whole, that Jesus made complete atonement for all sin. First John chapter two says, Jesus is the propitiation that is the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. That's how sufficient the work of Jesus Christ was when he died on the cross on all of our behalf. Every sin the Bible teaches is now completely forgivable. Every sin, no matter how much sin, no matter how evil or vile the sin through trusting Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. And you may say, I, I struggle with that. I- I- I sh- how can you say that? Here's what I would say. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Jesus said that. Again, look at the text. These aren't my words. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. Jesus said that. But isn't it awesome that Jesus said that? (laughs) That Jesus said any sin and all sin is forgivable for mankind because he knew of the sufficiency of what he would do in his work upon the cross. But then he went on to say, in light of this, in light of this reality of, again, First John says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from most sin, from what? All. All sin. All sin. And Jesus said, that is a true biblical truth. But he then went also, verse 29, to say, however, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is now subject to eternal condemnation. Blasphemy, again, another compound word. Blapto means to hinder. Feme, the second half of the word, means to show or make something known through communication. When you put the word together, blaspheme or blasphemy means the act of rebelliously hindering what someone is trying to say to you or show you. Now, this begins to make sense. What was the Holy Spirit blaspheming against him? What was the Holy Spirit trying to say to people and trying to show to people that they were refusing and hindering? Well, John 15, Jesus said, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will testify of me. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And then he went on to say, regarding convicting of sin, he identified, because of sin in that they do not believe in me, a particular sin, not believing in Jesus. So what is the testimony that the Holy Spirit was trying to speak to and to reveal and to show the religious leaders that they were refusing and resisting and they were stopping the testimony of the Holy Spirit? It was the Holy Spirit saying to them, I don't care how religious you think you are as a scribe. You are still a guilty sinner before a holy God, just as much as that prostitute in your self-righteous attitude towards out on the street. And you need this, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's the same thing the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is conveying to every human soul on the planet. It is the testimony of the Spirit of God that we are sinners and that we need to receive Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, that He is the Savior. And if a person keeps resisting that, refusing that, denying that testimony of the Holy Spirit and dies in that condition, in a sense, they have committed the blasphemy against the Spirit who's been trying to tell them how they need to be saved through Christ. And when a person does that continually, they are bordering on this dangerous thing the Bible refers to as, listen, please hear me, the one unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is the sin of rejecting the testimony from the Spirit of God that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is who needs to save us as the only way to be forgiven of our sin and have access to go into heaven through the free gift that he offers to us. And when someone does that and refuses that continually, they become, Jesus says, subject now to eternal condemnation because they've committed a sin in a sense which there is is no forgiveness for rejecting Christ. God can't offer that because it is God's means of salvation, and to die in that condition would be to hear Jesus say, you are now subject to eternal condemnation. Depart from me, I never knew you because you refused me when the Spirit told you that you needed to receive me as Savior. And look, folks, this is such an important truth to understand because it clears up some misunderstandings, one particularly for the Christian, with a sensitive conscience because what Satan does is when a person sins or fails or maybe they have a grievous fall or they make an error mistake, Satan whispers in people's ear and tries to make them worry, oh, what you've done is unpardonable. I mean, it just there's no way. You think Jesus wants to forgive you now after what you've done, the line that you've crossed? And let me just say, you can choose to believe the voice of the devil, or you can choose to believe the voice of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. I recommend believe Jesus' voice. If you've trusted Christ, there's forgiveness for anything. That's the assurance. And in the same way, I think Satan tries to keep people perpetually from coming to Jesus Christ by always keeping them focusing on their sins or some sin, when the reality is the focus should be don't harden your heart towards the Spirit telling you that you need to be saved. And so Jesus here lays this out to clear a huge misunderstanding that can be very dangerous. Verse 31, the last little vignette we see here, it says, and then his brothers and his mother come to him standing outside and they sent to him calling him. Now notice the spirit inspired word of God, the scriptures here, clarifies a misunderstanding about what we might call the perpetual virginity of Mary, Jesus' mother. Because despite church traditions, God's word declares here that Jesus had what? Siblings. Here it says his brothers. Matthew or Mark chapter 6 is going to say he had brothers and sisters, which means after the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus through Mary, Mary and her husband, Joseph, conceived and naturally had other children, which became half brothers to our Lord Jesus Christ, which is crucial because this idea of the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary, which is an unbiblical idea, causes Mary then to be venerated to a status that is unbiblical and unhealthy. And so the Bible teaches Jesus had siblings, his mother, his brothers, his family come, and there it says, verse 32, sitting around him and they're saying to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers, they're outside and they're seeking you. To which Jesus then answered, verse 33, who is my mother and my brothers? So Jesus has them here now, hey, your family's outside. They're seeking you. They're concerned about you. And Jesus, in a culture which esteemed family very highly, makes this question now. He says, tell me, who really is my family? Now, understand, this was not meant to disrespect his family. At the cross, Jesus made arrangement for his elderly mother to be taken care of by John. He's not disrespecting his family. What he's doing is clarifying spiritual and eternal matters are the foremost important. In essence, Jesus is saying, tell me, who's my real family? You said my family's outside. Who are my real, long-term, spiritual and eternal family Verse 34, he then looked around a circle of those who sat with him, and who was there? His disciples, his followers, those who believed in him, who followed him, who were letting Jesus have lordship over their lives, who loved God, who wanted to do the will of God, and he then said about those sitting there, these here are my brother, or my mother and my brothers, and he says, this is my real family. These are my real family members. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus says, this is my real spiritual family. Whoever does the will of God, Jesus says, reveals they're my real family members. They're the ones genuinely in the Father's family spiritually. Now, what does it mean to be someone who does the will of God? Well, one obvious thing is, to be saved by the Son of God. The Bible tells us that it is the will of God that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to get into God's family is to be born spiritually into the family of God. There must be a spiritual birth. But also, I think Jesus says here, those who do the will of God or my family is a reminder... Those in right relationship with him and his father aren't those living in rebellion to God, the father and God's will, but those who like Jesus as the son of God, what did Jesus always want to do? The will of God. Right? I don't do anything that doesn't please the Father. Father, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus said, I can tell who my true brothers and sisters are spiritually because, like me, they want to do the will of the Heavenly Father. So how do we, as someone today, do the will of God? Well, very simply, without complicating it, first of all, by obeying the Word of God. Because this is the will of God. And it's got plenty enough here to keep me busy. And this is the written will of God right here. Anything I do in alignment with this is in alignment with the will of God. Anything I do outside of alignment with this is outside of the will of God. This is the will of God. That's how I do the will of God. And how else? By listening to the Spirit of God who's working inside of me, the Spirit of truth who inspired the word of God, and so who in consistency leads us as he speaks to us to do things in alignment with the word of God. We see what mattered most to Jesus was what? Doing the will of God. Boy, should we always remember that? It's not this, it's not that about spiritual life. Jesus said, here's what matters most to me, doing the will of God. Do the will of God. That's what matters to me. That's what matters to my father. He said, these are my true family members. You know, I, I look at this and I think it makes me understand why, and you've experienced this if you're a genuine believer as a part of the Lord's family, why Jesus say this is my real family. And, you know, sometimes we, we, we recognize that reality, that sometimes we have a closer bond and a closer connection with our brothers and sisters spiritually than we do sometimes with our own natural family. Why? Because these are the people who want to do the will of God like we do. And so we have that bond, and this becomes our true family. And I think one of the greatest mistakes we make sometimes as people is we can be guilty of committing family domestic idolatry, where basically on occasions we favor or focus more on honoring our biological family than we do doing the will of God. Or we err on the side of esteeming too much, keeping happy our own blood family or pleasing relatives over doing the will of God. And let me caution you, you know what, what matters most, do the will of God. And please and stay in healthy relationship with your spiritual eternal family.